0: Hi and welcome to the Your Purpose's Calling podcast: Conversations with Christians who are finding purpose, redefining work, and changing their world. I'm your host, Don Sadler. My guests today are John Cortinas and Greg Bommer. John and Greg met in Harvard's MBA program. They were each on the fast track to a life of financial freedom and luxury when they unexpectedly felt God calling them in a new direction a direction that would challenge everything they had planned for their lives. Today, John and Greg are the co-authors of God and Money, How We Discover True Riches at Harvard Business School. Their latest book is called True Riches, What Jesus Really Said About Money and Your Heart. In this episode, Greg and John share their own personal journey about redefining money, success, and financial security. You can access the show notes for today's episode at Donsadler.com slash 033. The Your Purpose is Calling podcast is brought to you by Avada Christian Coaching. We give business owners, career professionals, and ministry leaders the tools they need to create vision, commit to action, and conquer their goals to walk in their calling with clarity and confidence. Sign up for our free weekly coaching emails at avidalkcoaching.com slash subscribe. But in the meantime, let's jump into my fascinating interview with John and Greg. Hi, Greg. Hi, John. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited to have you here. So you have a new book out called "True Riches: What Jesus Really Said About Money and Your Heart." And I just want to say congratulations. This is number one uh, for new re- the number one new release in Christian stewardship, which is well deserved because I have read this book and it's great. I highly recommend it. So congratulations on that.
2: Thanks so much. We've been delighted to see what God has done in us and in this project.
0: Yeah. So let's just start a little bit with, tell our listeners who you are and what you do.
2: All right. Well, this is John here. And um, John Cortinas and I am the Chief Operating Officer for Generous Giving, a wonderful ministry that exists to spread the biblical message of generosity. And so we're a unique nonprofit. We don't raise money for our work at our events, and we also don't tell people where to give, but we really exist for the why of generosity. You know, why should we give as Christians and, and what is the motivation for that and really have a passion to connect giving to the gospel. And I live in Orlando, Florida with my wife, Megan, and our three children.
0: Greg, how about you?
1: Yes, uh, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, where I work for a healthcare company uh, that helps care for people after they leave the hospital. And I uh, am married to Allison, and we also have three young children.
0: So that's great. So, a part of your story, you're both very humbled because a part of your story is that you met in a business school, graduate school at Harvard. Is that correct?
1: Yes, it is. We met in a men's Bible study uh, during our first year uh, at Harvard Business School.
0: And you each had such an uh, incredible future laid out for you, right? I would imagine coming out of business school from Harvard and you. Is it true to say you kind of had your pick of jobs and your future was all laid out and everything seemed like it was going according to plan? Does that accurately describe how kind of where you were when you met?
1: I think that accurately describes the uh, hubristic deception that we had. Um, It's accurate to say that we believed those things you just said were true. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's so interesting. And and that is such an important context for our conversation, um, which we're going to dive into. Um, but I, I'm going to start with you, John, because I read the introduction and uh, you tell this story about, and you will tell this better than I do, but you were on this track. I believe you said that you had a, a job in, in Europe waiting for you. You had a plan. You are going to go to Europe. You you were married. You you and your wife were going to save. You are going to come back to the States. You're going to pay cash for a house, retire early. You had it all worked out, right? And then what happened?
2: Yes, that's that's exactly right. And I was in the oil and gas business, and I, qu- I figured out that if I could make it overseas, that they pay a lot more money for working overseas. And and I had lined up a post-MBA job with my former employer that would have paid unbelievable money, allowed us to save like crazy, and we had this vision to retire by age 40. And we had the spreadsheet to prove it. You know, that was our plan and, uh, and, you know, that was something we were really excited about, but as Greg and I went on this journey and began discovering God's heart for money and for generosity, he really was doing a work in our heart. But then what happened in, in my journey was I connected with this ministry, Generous Giving. We both did, in fact. Uh, but God began moving and calling me and my wife to consider that my career could be dedicated to Christian ministry rather than the oil and gas industry. And... You know, we firmly believe that, that God calls people in different directions, and He needs His children in business and in ministry, but He uniquely called us to ministry, and so He was asking us to lay down that path that we had worked really hard for and were very excited about, and for me to take this job with a, a nonprofit.
0: Yeah, and I want to I want to jump in there, because uh, and, and Greg, I'm, I'm going to ask you um, plenty as well, but John, your part of this introduction, and we talked about this a little bit before we hit record, I think it's easy for people to hear a story like yours and assume that, oh, well, that was just easy. I had my life planned out. God showed me a left turn and I was obedient and it was rainbows and glitter the whole way. But you actually walked through a pretty extensive season, you and your wife together, of feeling really challenged by what God was calling you to do. Is that is that true?
2: That's absolutely true. And, you know, I think Uh, My wife and I have had a lot of conversations about this, trying to put our finger on, you know, what was it? And and I think we had this, we certainly did not have a prosperity gospel, which says, you know, if we follow God or live generously, that we'll get material blessings, we'll be healthy and wealthy. We we didn't believe that. But I think we had an emotional prosperity gospel, which says if we really are obedient to God and we go into ministry when he calls us into ministry, that we'll have joy every day and it'll be amazing and our relationships will be so good and our spiritual life will be... You know, over the moon, and I think we had that vision that we had picked up, and and the reality is the the way of Jesus and following Jesus often involves suffering, and I think that recognition was a significant change for us, um, and it's something that we would not change one bit. This path we've been on, but there are certainly dark times, times of doubt. You know, John the Baptist had his moment in prison, doubting is have I. Have, is this real? Is Jesus real? And so I think it's it's important to be honest and recognize when we follow Jesus, there are moments of challenge. There are moments, sometimes even years, of very difficult times. And we've walked through that. Um, my wife, Megan, summed it up really beautifully the other night. We were talking about our journey over the last four years. And she said, you know, it was very hard. And, and in fact, it's been so much harder than our, our life would have been otherwise. But we're closer to Jesus, and I wouldn't trade it for anything.
0: Hmm so great. Greg, tell me a little bit about why did you guys decide to write this book? What was it that you wanted your reader most to know, to feel, and to do as a result of writing this book?
1: Yeah, you know, it actually started as a term paper. Uh, John and I took a class over at Harvard Divinity School called God and Money, and um, that... Uh, Class explored the intersection of faith and finance in our culture, and that was actually the first time that John and I had deeply explored that idea. Despite growing up as lifelong Christians, growing up in great Christian families, uh, in the church, we had never really looked into or understood how God wanted um, us to have a theology of money as well, I'll say, and so therefore we had a very bad theology of money. (laughs) Uh, And so we ended up writing a term paper for that course that explored how uh, we would attempt to be wise stewards, were we ever uh, blessed with more than we needed? Uh, And through a crazy series of events um, that we can dive into, uh, that term paper ended up becoming our first book, which was called God and Money. And uh, it was through the journey that we've been on since the publication of that book um, that led us now to uh, write the second book called True Riches, um, because we really want people to understand why uh, we give, Um, it's not because God needs our money, right? He's sovereign and he'll accomplish his purposes no matter what we do. So it's much more about the spiritual formation and sanctification and Christ-likeness that comes from uh, our obedience in the area of generosity. And that's really what uh, we dive into in this book.
0: So tell me a little bit about the story of how that term paper became a book.
1: Yes. So we, uh, the term paper, what, uh, what John and I realized is that as business school students, we were not really able to write a full academic term paper. So we thought, let's use up all the page requirements in charts and let's do a <laughs> survey. <laughs> um, and so we surveyed uh, 200 Harvard Business School alumni who were Christians. We had the sort of email list from the Christian fellowship on campus there. And we, uh, so we surveyed these families, and then we also read the whole Bible, front to back, everything it had to say about money. And we used the combination of those two things, the survey and God's word, to inform our term paper. And the deal was, if you took the survey, we'd send you the term paper. And so it was when we sent this term paper back out to all of these survey respondents that they encouraged us to continue the project. Uh, And again, through a providential set of events, that led to some speaking opportunities, which led to a book agent, which led to a publisher, which led to a book far surpassing any potential vision that John and I ever had for this project.
0: What were some of the things that came back in the survey that really surprised you?
1: The biggest surprise was uh, if you really drilled into some of the families who were living very generously, the joy that they exuded and experienced in their day-to-day life surpassed anything John and I had ever seen. They weren't giving out of duty or obligation. Uh, And in fact, it was almost, I would go so far as to say it was almost like an addiction. You know, it's like they experienced Christ and his joy by living in this radically generous way. And so it was really like honing in on this subset of families that uh, transformed John and, and my view of giving.
0: Hmm. And Greg, did you go through a similar similar process to what John described and just this is a this is a difficult pill to swallow that my life might look a little bit different than everything I've been working towards for the last how many ever years?
1: Yeah you know, I had a, God had a unique um, journey for my wife and I, but it is different than John. So unlike John, um, I elected to join a you know, go into a commercial enterprise following graduation. So I joined a small healthcare startup. Uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, after we graduated. And I'll say, you know, it's one thing for us to sit in Cambridge, Massachusetts in our ivory tower and write about what we'll one day do with money that we don't yet have. But it's another thing to actually put it into practice. Uh, And so what my story is that when I joined this healthcare startup, uh, just six weeks after I joined, we were acquired by a much larger healthcare company for over $400 million. Wow.
0: And
1: I was fortunate to be a small equity holder in the startup. And so six weeks into my new gig, you know, I received an equity payout far in excess of any sum of money I'd ever had. And in fact, at the time, my net worth was negative. (laughs) So uh, there's grad school loans for you. Um, So that was God, you know, now in retrospect, I can see saying, okay, you know, you've ostensibly written this Paper now book on how you'll obey me in this area. Will you really put it into practice? So that was a great chance for my wife and I to walk out the lessons that he taught us while we were still in school. Hmm.
0: hmm. So in the book, you guys outline four transformations um, that you encourage people to sort of think through. And you know, I have to say, I was really challenged by some of these, and I even entered into to repentance for some things that this book. Highlighted for me, and so I was really grateful for that. But um, one of the the first transformation that you mentioned is from pride to gratitude, and the part of that chapter that I really loved was this idea that we feel a lot of pride, and especially for a couple of guys in Harvard Business School, it'd be very easy to say, um, "Well, we worked really hard to get here. We, you know, we sacrificed to be here." But what you outline in the book is, listen everybody's success is a series of God-given resources and events. So the school that you went to or the mentor that you had or someone who poured into you or where you were born and all of those things, when we view it through that lens, we begin to feel very differently about the work that we are called to, right? Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
2: Well, that's uh, absolutely true. And I think it applies both in this financial world and also in our spiritual lives, which is, I think, the huge aha that we've had in our journey. Uh, so you're absolutely right that, you know, all of the financial success we have, and, and I can say for myself, I looked at the money I had, and, and my wife and I had saved up, actually, we were, we we're very intense savers, we had $300,000 saved up by age 24. And, and you know, I say that, and, and, there's a lot of pride that can be in that. Like, hey, look at what we have done. And so it's the spirit that says, I've earned it. I've worked hard. I deserve it. Uh, And that's really what I was carrying around when it comes to my finances. And so to actually recognize everything I have is a gift from God. My circumstances are a gift, my family, my education, my faith, the connections, the economy that I happen to live in, all of this is a gift. And then to turn it around and make it all of our lives and our spiritual reality is you know, our salvation as Christians, we believe that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who died to give us the opportunity to have eternal life in God and have all of our sin erased. And so that is the ultimate gift that our whole life has been bought and redeemed by God. Um, so it's amazing. You know, my my spiritual life is a gift. My finances are a gift. And so that's really the movement from pride to gratitude, which is such a freeing thing for the heart.
0: Yeah, Greg, what's your thought on that, that transformation from pride to gratitude? What's your experience with that?
1: Yeah, I think uh, for me, you know, John mentioned that he was uh, an intensive saver. Uh, I was sort of on the flip side. My wife and I were more spenders, by which Mm -hmm. I mean we place a lot of value on uh, material things, not so much, you know, consumer goods, but for us, it was more experiences uh, mm-hmm. and what, how experiences could give us value. And to be totally honest, how the experiences that we could afford allowed us to stack up relative to others. So we had mm-hmm. a lot of our self-worth wrapped up in that type of thing. And I will say it took us a long time to be sort of introspective and repentant enough to realize that that was the case. Um, and so the, the journey from pride to gratitude for me has been actually – Um, putting my value in material goods is shorting um, the joy and and the trueness of life, the fullness of life that we can have in a life that actually is anchored in Christ. And so for us, for for my wife and I, it's not about being prideful that we can take this vacation or go to this restaurant. It's actually gratitude that God has um, provided us this opportunity to serve him with our financial resources and, and the richness that we experience from that.
0: And to be clear, your book is really, um, outlines that neither one of you are advocating for going, uh, you know, off somewhere and living off the grid and, you know, barely getting by. That's not what you're advocating. Um, you're saying you can still have a very comfortable lifestyle. You can still have vacations. I love the example of a really nice living room, but it is just like you said, Greg, not pursuing those things for um you know to compare to others or to bring any sort of identity because our identity comes ultimately from from Christ. Is that correct? Do I have that perspective yeah,
1: That's exactly right. You know, I think there's some uh you know there's some folks who you know are sort of in and around the Christian finance space who so it's almost like some sort of, you know, highest frugality contest.
0: Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Just,
1: I don't see that in scripture. Um You know, I mean, we see in Timothy, for example, the Apostle Paul, like, explicitly teaching the pastor Timothy how to pastor to those who are wealthy. And we see uh, all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, God using those who are wealthy to further uh, his kingdom. Now, at the same time, there's plenty of Scripture around how being wealthy is a risk to our spiritual condition. Right. It's it's certain that's true, but it's it's not bad to have financial resources. It's all about how you use them and why you use them. Um, And so, you know... For us, we're not sort of adherent to some sort of like asceticism, right? I mean, yeah. at the same time, though, you know, I think seeping into luxuries for luxury's sake, seeping into our cultural sin of materialism is also not what God calls us to. So it's about the responsible use of God's resources for his purposes.
0: Right. I feel like... um Yeah, I think that whenever Christians start talking about money, there's, uh, you know, a few things that happen, and that's a gross generalization, forgive me, but um, I think that sometimes it can be about the tithing, well, the church just wants money. Sometimes it can automatically be lumped in with prosperity theology, um, which, you know, as, as you alluded to earlier, but I think it just really comes down to stewarding well, the resources, whatever that is. You know, in the Bible, there's the the guy with one talent and guy with three or five, whatever that was. Whatever it is that God has put into our hands, that we are stewarding that well. John, do you think that's do you think that's true?
2: I think that's so true. There's um Pastor John Tyson has called it a provocative lifestyle distinction. And I think that's such a good phrase. And he says, you know, he points out that he has a billionaire friend who chooses not to own a private aircraft and instead flies commercial, which to his friends is crazy. Uh, To the rest of us, you know, that sounds really nice to even be able to take flights. But his friends think that's insane. Why wouldn't you spend the million a year on a jet? It makes everything so much easier. And he says, guys, that's a million dollars I can give away to help people in need. And so whatever our economic status is, we can all make a choice to live more simply than our peers would at the same income bracket because of our faith, motivated by the gospel to to live generously and experience the joy that that brings.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you about that because as I was reading your book, I was remembering when I was in my early twenties and I went into real estate and I had a beat up old Tercel, Toyota Tercel. And I remember, uh, my mentors telling me at the time, you've got to go out and get a nice car. No one is going to want to do business with you if you do not have a nice car. And so I fell into that trap and I went out and I bought a BMW, which I could afford, but it wasn't, it didn't turn out to be necessary. And so, um, do you guys ever face, or what would you say to somebody who faces sort of this pressure of, you know, like the story that you just told of the guy in the airplane, people saying, oh my gosh, you have to have the, you know, $2,000 suits. You have to have the nice car. You have to do all of this in order to be successful. What kind of, what what advice would you give?
1: Yeah, that's a good one because I would say that's such a prevalent theme in our culture generally, uh, is you know the proverbial keeping up with the Joneses, um, and I think that's yeah. just the expression of the sin of materialism in our culture. Um, and so, uh, I think one thing that my wife and I do is one acknowledge that that to us at all times, right? That that all around us is the pressure of keeping up with the Joneses. And so, um, sort of like that metaphor of you know you toss the frog in the pot and it doesn't know it's getting boiled until it's too late. Like just assume that you're getting boiled. Right. And um, so what we try to do is, you know, continually check ourselves on in what way are we being influenced um, in ways that are not honoring to God. Uh, So um, another uh, piece of advice I have is that actually choosing lifestyle choices that are against the prevailing culture in this way are actually great on roads to ministry, by which I mean, you know, I also drive like an old beater car, uh, it's a O2 Mercury grand marquee, uh, which I love. Um, and you know, I will say the main reason I have that car is to keep my own heart in check, because as I mentioned earlier, I am prone to materialism and to nice things. And so that car is a, a daily reminder for me that my value is not in my stuff, but it also is a great conversation starter with others on why do I have that car? Uh, and it's a great, it's a great way to engage people on this subject.
0: I think that's true. And I also think that when people are saying, well, you've got to have this or you're not going to be successful, I mean, that is essentially fear-based talk, fear-based thinking, and which is outside of kingdom truth anyway, right? Because our provision comes from the Lord and not the car i drive or the suit that i wear so really i mean it's it's just such an indication anytime that somebody speaks something that is rooted in fear that is that you can identify this is fear based thinking is an opportunity to stop and say hey god this you know can you talk to me about this john do you think that's true
2: oh i absolutely do you know i think it's um there, there are lots of excuses for luxury that we can, that we can use for ourselves. And again, this is not to condemn any, the ownership of anything nice at any time, you know, in my, you could point to nice things my family has and say, wow, look what they have. But I think it's this overall direction of our lives and which way are we headed. Um, you know, I was, I was sucked in for one brief season of my life into wanting a nice pen, you know, a writing instrument, a nice pen. And and in that season, I actually got to meet the CEO of of Chevron, where I I was employed, and and he had a Pilot G two, you know, is, which is like a two dollar pin and sticking out of his pocket. And um, so I just think, you know, if if a guy like that can use a pin like that, it just it makes me remember. It simplicity is a beautiful thing.
1: You know, one other point on this that's worth bringing up is I think where it's really hard now in my current phase of life is with our kids, because it's one thing to say like, oh, I need a BMW or the nice suit to get deals done or whatever. And I think we can sort of talk through as we've just done why that's inappropriate. I will say that my wife and I are now like actively in a struggle of thinking through how this applies to our children, because we want to give them a nice life and we want to give them opportunities and we want them to be safe. But we also don't want them to grow up spoiled or sheltered or not have context. And finding that right balance is honestly very difficult. Hmm.
0: Yeah. You know what? I didn't think of that, but that's so true that we have the pressure, but also our children have the pressure. They go to school and somebody has got the brand new, you know, fancy tennis shoes or whatever it is. And that brings in a whole other layer into this whole conversation, right?
1: Yeah, I think so. And it's also hard, like as a a parent, I feel like, you know, you are debating too spiritual truths that are both true like one is you know be a good parent and then the other is you know be wise uh from a stewardship perspective and so drawing the line there i think is a bit tricky and one thing that uh that i might add here just really practically
2: speaking we're we're pretty open about our personal finances in in the books that that we've written and so i'll just share this is you know in the spirit of simplicity and what does that look like we've both embraced something called a financial finish line which we've seen many people practice in the the community of Christians, very committed to biblical generosity. And this is just an idea that at some point there is enough and there's a blessed life financially and there's plenty of resources. And so to be real specific, that's that's about $100,000 per year um, where our families have said, you know, this, this is a level of spending that is very nice. It's far above what the median household could, could even afford. And yet it's a guardrail that God, if you bless us with Lots of money, millions of dollars, a huge income will bump up against that guardrail and, and know this is a nice life, but not extravagant. And that's the way that we can can live and bring up our families. Um, and again, lots of grace and freedom in that because who knows how life will evolve or family size and geography, but it's just sort of a principle that that we aspire to live by.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. I know that that um, you talk about that in that second transformation, which is going from coveting to contentment, which I found very convicting um, in the very best way. But you had some, again, some really practical advice because as I was reading the book, at first I was thinking, well, this is great. They These are two men who had you know, like all of the opportunities in front of them. What about the person who doesn't? What about the person who's struggling to make ends meet, who doesn't feel like they They have those opportunities, but you have a really great, um, benchmark, uh, two key concepts in that transformation from coveting to contentment, which are margin and enough. Talk to me a little bit about those two concepts.
2: Sure. Well, you know, the, the idea there is that, uh, what we find in scripture and and what we find in the wisdom of, of good personal finance instruction is that no matter what income bracket we find ourselves in, the foundation for healthy personal finances is, is having, margin in our finances and that's that first principle and that's the whole idea that we spend less than we bring in every month and that margin when we spend less than we're bringing in an in income that gives us some space out of which we can save and out of which we can give both of which are healthy behaviors for our finances uh, the biblical principle i point to uh, leviticus nineteen nine, actually in the old testament you know, god is writing the law for poor uh, agri- a poor agrarian society and he's saying how do i want you to live he says, hey, when you reap your harvest, don't reap your field right up to the edge. Uh, do not strip your vineyard bare. And he, he talks about leaving an edge in the field for the poor and for the person traveling through the sojourner. He says, I'm the Lord your God. So, you know, God is saying even to a farmer who wants to work hard and get every piece of that crop, he says, hey, hey, leave, leave some there for the poor. And I think if we were to take what does that mean for us today— says, hey, when you manage your finances, don't use it all up every month, leave some margin so that you can be a generous person, whether you're wealthy or whether you're not. Um, And the second concept of enough, we just hit on that, which is, you know, if our income goes up and up and up and up, up, this whole idea of ratios may not work out anymore. You know, if I'm making a million dollars a year, and I say, I'm only going to spend half, well, that's half a million bucks. And so at some point, we might say, there's enough for my family. And I've reached the cap of what I want to consume, and now I'm totally free to just give out of all the excess that God brings into my life.
0: We'll return to my interview with John Cortinas and Greg Balmer in just a moment. But first, I want to let you know that today's episode is sponsored by Avidoc Coaching, and we have a free gift for you. You can download our free daily planning tool, The Peak Page, to make it easy to plan your time, your tasks, and your goals each day. In fact, the Peak page actually features six different high performance planning tools on one page to give you more focus and more clarity and more energy in your day. To download the Peak page for free, visit slash peak. And now, back to my interview with John and Greg. And so the third, um, the third transformation is going from anxiety to trust. Um, and Greg, you talked about this a little bit earlier, but I'm wondering if you would expand on this, because I know that you talked about this in this chapter, is just your own personal temptation, even now, even everything that you know in writing these books, um, that there's still times when you have a personal temptation to seek your security in money um, instead of in God. Tell us a little bit about how you walk through that.
1: Yeah, you know, I don't know what it is about the human heart, but for some reason, it is naturally prone to the trappings of wealth. And I think um, another factor of the human heart is that, you know, we're always looking out for number one, right? (laughs) Looking out for ourselves. And so when those two things come together, I think what that leads to for a lot of people is anxiety around the future with respect to money. We see in public study after public study by all sorts of organizations that money-related matters are the number one cause of marital discord, the number one cause of sleepless nights, the number one cause of anxiety for adults. Uh, So it's such a consistent theme. And, uh, you know, at the same time, though, we see in scripture that God calls us like not to live in a life of anxiety, um, uh, but to rather place our trust in him. Um, Our ultimate trust, right, in terms of salvation uh, in Jesus Christ, as well as our day-to-day provision, right, where we see, you know, if in scripture, like if God even cares for you know the little birds, won't He also care for His children? And so, um, for me, you know, it's so tempting to think about my mortgage and my kids and you know my unknown future and, and potential healthcare issues that I might have, and decide I need to start stockpiling this money as though I'm in control of what can happen. Um, and so, I think the opportunity to rather place that trust in Christ. Uh, with respect to our finances, which means letting go of this, uh, you know, anxiety about the future, trusting in him as our provider, living generously now uh, to experience his joy uh, is a much more faithful and deeper way to live our financial lives.
0: John, how do you reconcile? That's great, Greg. I, um, I love that. And I was, as I was reading the book, John, you told a story about how you were giving 10%. And so your friends, your family, and even your church sort of assumed that you were spiritually mature because you were faithful with your tithe, right? Did you tell me a little bit more about that?
2: That's right. You know, I think giving 10% away is this wonderful, wonderful principle that exists. And it's a, it's a rich tradition that we find in our churches. But I think the the shadow side of it, or the downside of it is that sometimes people like myself can end up with this impression that man, Christians and money, the the whole deal is if you're giving 10%, you're mature, and you've got it figured out. And, um, and I think that's really where I was. And my wife and I, we had kind of run the calculations, right, as we all can debate, is it gross income or net income? How do you calculate your 10%? And, And, and we had, you know, run all those calculations, and we're giving 10%. And so I really, again, it comes back to pride, like, hey, I'm, I'm giving my 10%. I'm saving like crazy. That's what a mature Christian does. Look how good I am. And it was through this whole process where God began to reveal yeah. to me, hey, there's there's a lot of ugliness going on spiritually, a lot of idolatry. And again, it, it goes to these principles, pride, coveting, anxiety, and indifference. And all four of those characterized the way I was relating to money. So really connecting generosity to the gospel was a huge turning point for me and my wife. And And you know, praise God that he's given us the resources and the heart posture to go beyond 10% now. And it's so much less about a rule and so much more about walking in relationship with Christ and asking him what he has for us uh, each month, one day at a time.
0: Yeah. And I love what you say in the, in your book, which is that money is a tool that God uses to help shape our character.
2: I think that's uh, absolutely true. I think spiritual formation, you know, this issue for us, and, and I know There are different issues that impact different people, but I do believe that money is is so central. You know, it's 15% of everything Jesus talked about related to money. And for me specifically, I can just say that as I began to surrender my financial life to Christ, I encountered a deeper walk with Him. I think it's just such an amazingly central issue. And as we begin to obey, our character begins to look more like that of Jesus Christ, which is a beautiful thing.
0: Yeah, I think that... um... I think that's great. One of the things that's really helpful and super practical in the book is you break down some benchmarks of and some examples of how much for debt, how much for savings, how much for um, giving. But I wanted to talk to you about, there's, you know, obviously in the book, one of the major themes is just trusting in God as provider. How do you reconcile setting financial goals and uh, and trusting in God as as your provider? I'm not sure if that's clear, but I just feel like that sort of how do you reconcile those two things? How do those two things go together?
2: You know, this is, that's a fantastic question. And it's, it's a wonderful question. I think one of the tensions, there are so many tensions to manage, um, you know, as we navigate life and as we build our theology. And I think one of those tensions is the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man and believe that God is sovereign and we see him sovereign acting through history. And yet, in in a mysterious way, our actions matter. And he gives us agency and he gives us responsibility that's a real thing that we get to carry in our lives. And so I believe that's how this tension gets expressed financially, is that we believe that God is sovereign. We believe that he's the provider for us. And yet one of the ways that he provides for us is through our own planning, through our own intelligence, through our own ability to earn an income that he has given us. So I don't know if that's um, exactly what you're asking, but that's the way that, um, we have really been living this out and saying, God, we trust you and ultimately we place our faith in you, and yet we ask you to give us wisdom as we make a plan, we set some goals and we begin to to walk it out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What would you say, just to kind of drill down a little bit on this, is um, Greg, for example, if you were an entrepreneur and you said, I want to build a million-dollar company because and and all of these things were in place. So let's just say, John, using the example that you had with $100,000 a year, I'm going to use $100,000 a year for my family. I'm going to build a million dollar company because I'm going to give the rest to, um, to the church in advancing the kingdom. So Greg, would you say that that was, uh, like a good example of creating a goal that was aligned with generosity or how would you, how would you address that? Or how would you, how would you take that on?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think it totally can be, right? I mean, God, like John said earlier, God desires for his children, some of them to be in the commercial sector, creating employment, you know, work is ordained by God all the way back to Genesis. And he is glorified, as we read from Paul, through our hard work and our efforts. Um, And so I think Creating a positive workplace environment for employees, creating value for customers—you know—in whatever entrepreneurial endeavor this person is doing, whatever industry they're in—is uh, glorifying to God. If—and here's the big if—if if the intention and motive is for His glory as opposed to self-gain—and yeah. so I think it's—it uh, comes down to motive and it comes down to God's call. Um, and I think some a way that we can discern that here's the rub, right? there's people who there's Christians who even say like, I'll earn lots of money and give it away when I die. Right. Yeah. Or whatever, you know, it's like, well, that's not really being faithful. Um, you know, I think you have to query the Lord in prayer to see how he would be uniquely calling you in your spiritual walk. And you should test those ideas against other Christians whose wisdom you respect. Um, that's how we see all throughout scripture, Christians learning and discerning God's will. Um, you know, unless he's speaking to them directly in a unique number of cases. Uh and so I think that's um that's how we should test those things. So the entrepreneur who's saying, I'm going to build this business, if it's done for God's glory and you have other Christians speaking into you and helping you ensure that's true when the inevitable pride seeps in, yes, totally.
2: Yeah. And I think just one quick comment I'd add on to that, as as the business guy called into ministry, you know, I think there's this hierarchy or reverse hierarchy that Christians often have about what's the holiest calling. And you know, if I'm if I'm a missionary that's like the best. And then if I'm a pastor that's second best. And then like I guess if I'm third class citizen I can be in business and and actually for others it can be, you know, business is like really where the action is, but if you don't quite make it, maybe you'll go into ministry. And and I think all of that is it's a little bit silly to joke about, but it's actually a real heart posture that I know that I had and I've heard many other people talk about. And so the same issues Greg is is raising they can be true in the ministry world, right? Am I building a ministry for reasons of pride and self-aggrandizement or am I doing it for the glory of God? But there's there's no second class citizens in the kingdom. And we've all been ordained for, for work in this world for God's glory, whether he's put us in the business world or in the ministry world. And, and we work hard and we point to him and we praise him for the opportunities he gives us.
0: That's brilliant. It's so true. Um, So talk to me a little bit about that fourth transformation transformation which is from indifference to love.
2: Absolutely. You know, I think this is really an outflow of all the rest and and I know if, if I'm looking at my own journey again and so many conversations I've had with with people we hear about needs in the world and we kind of get numb to it, right? We've seen commercials, we've we've heard sermons, we we know that there are all these amazing needs, that there's incredible suffering in the world, but we get numb to it and we're indifferent. And we kind of say, you know, I got to take care of my family. There's all that stuff going on, but I'm just hardened to it. But if we look at Jesus Christ, we see that he did not have a hard heart like that. In fact, he had the soft, compassionate heart uh, that that he invites us all into. And so that's really the fourth transformation is as we press into Jesus and as we begin to give, to advance the causes that he has on the earth, the building up of his church, inviting people to salvation, serving the poor and the needy. As we engage in those tasks along with God, he really begins to melt our heart, move us into compassion, and give us a heart of love for this world. So it's really connected to the gospel, connected to the heart of God, and and getting beyond ourselves and not just giving to the needs in the world because it's the right thing to do, but because it's actually propelled forward by the love of the gospel inside of us. Hmm.
0: Um, I love that. Greg, and I, I, this is going to be a question for each of you, but I'll start with you, Greg. What has been the transformation in your life as you've embraced and walked out these
2: principles?
1: Yeah, I think what's the biggest transformation for my wife and me in this is experiencing and beginning to understand why God actually calls us to give mm-hmm. and, you know, and having a proper understanding of that and then living it out. And So I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, having a proper understanding, we now know that God calls us to give not out of sense of duty or obligation, but rather uh, firstly, because he himself is the ultimate giver. Uh, second, we reflect his character back to him through our giving. And we do that in lots of other ways as well, not just giving, but you know, that's, that's what sanctification is, is becoming more Christ-like. Um, and then third, because like John mentioned earlier, for some reason God has delegated some of his work of kingdom building to us here on earth, and giving is one way that we participate alongside him in the fulfillment of his kingdom. And so when we give out of that understanding, because God is a giver, because we want to be more Christ-like, and because we're participating in his kingdom building, we experience such depth of joy and fullness of life that it's totally transformational in your day-to-day experience. Um, Relatedly, we've also learned to apply our giving in ways that are congruent with our other spiritual gifts. Because again, you know, generosity is not intended to be just sort of this one single pillar. It's actually instead like one puzzle piece in the overall picture of spiritual formation. Uh, and so as my wife and I have been able to connect other spiritual gifts that we have to our giving, uh, we won, I think, you know, it's, it glorifies God more, we have a bigger impact, and we have more fun doing it.
0: Hmm. John, how about you?
2: I would absolutely echo that. And I think just to sum up for my family, one is that we just feel closer to Jesus. I mean, as we've stepped into surrendering our finances and giving in a new way and trusting God, um, it truly has transformed our hearts in in those postures that we talk about in the book, you know, from pride to gratitude, coveting to contentment, anxiety to trust, indifference to love. I mean, all four of those, I could talk about each of them for a long, long time because they've been so true in our journey. And then I think the other piece is just seeing God's glory manifested through the impact of of our giving, whether that's through our local church, through helping plant a church or, or launch various projects overseas, and then just just kind of sitting back and going, God, how is it that I get to sit here in Orlando, Florida, and having this job, and then being able to mobilize dollars, and then realize what that means in terms of medical care delivered to people, people receiving the word of God, um, our church being able to operate. So. Actually playing a part in the plans of God on this earth has become a source of great joy for us as well.
0: Hmm. That's so great. Well, we like to, first of all, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom on the show today. I think it's, um, as we talked about before we started recording, I think it's going to be such a blessing, um to so many listening, but we like to wrap up every episode with what we call our final five, five questions designed to further resource our listeners. So I'll start with um, what is, and this is uh, each of these questions for each of you, other than the Bible, what is one book that changed your life and why?
1: Um, I'll start (coughs) for me, uh, Money, Possessions, and Eternity by Randy Alcorn. Mm. Uh, And uh, Randy Alcorn is a prolific author of of Christian books, former pastor who has written on many different subjects. So Money, Possessions, and Eternity is sort of, in my view, the best book on Christian stewardship. I got, you know, I would actually say, read that book. (laughs) Now that's like the encyclopedia of, you know, Christian stewardship. That's like a hefty book, but it's really amazing. And then that got me onto the train of Randy Alcorn books, which all of them are amazing. So that's what I would say. That's great, and this,
2: is, and this is John. I totally agree. Randy Alcorn is fantastic. Um, for me, uh, I'm a science guy, engineering guy, and, and the book is a little bit different. It's called Life's Solution by Simon Conway Morris. And he's a Christian paleobiologist. And in short, I was struggling with my faith over issues of, of evolution as a science mm-hmm. grad student. And Simon Conway Morris in his book, Life's Solution, showed me that you can be an intelligent Christian the issue of creation evolution exactly what happens in genesis one that doesn't have to be an issue that you lose your faith over and there are very intelligent very well-spoken theologians and scientists on both sides of that debate within the christian tradition so that was a very helpful book for me
0: i love that i love that tell me uh what podcast are you listening to now
1: and why i'll start again uh so uh I am not a scientist like uh, John, but I uh, fancy myself interested in scientific topics. And so I actually really like um, astrophysics. And so I listen to Star Talk uh, with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, and it's just like a, for me, um, although, you know, not a Christian podcast by any means, for me, it's a great way to just explore and learn more about the magnificent cosmos that our uh, God created.
2: And for me, I, uh, I tend to be an audiobook, a prolific consumer of audiobooks, although I have very much enjoyed Robbie Zacharias on the podcast front.
0: Oh, great. Great. And uh, just for all of our listeners, we'll re- we will include links to all of these in our show notes, so, um, so you can find that easily. Tell me, what is your favorite verse and why?
1: Uh, I'll start again. Uh, hopefully, John, I don't steal yours. Um, my, mine is First uh, Chronicles 29, verses 11 through 14. Uh, And this is where uh, King David and the people of Israel are uh, taking a big offering in order to build uh, the temple. And in these uh, just those few verses, uh, those four verses, you have this incredible, uh, I would say in one short, concise passage, incredible theology of money that you can see in Scripture uh, where King David says, um, uh, you know, oh, oh, God, all power and glory and might and finances come from you. Who am I and what are my people that we may offer thusly? And so in those two sentences, you have everything comes from God, and we are honored to have a, the opportunity to give some of it back to you. Uh, and then in the last two verses, they more or less celebrate and have a big party. And so then they experience joy from being obedient to God. And so in that little passage, you just have this great encapsulation of what our life should look like with respect to stewardship.
0: Hmm, that's great. John?
2: Sure. So for me, it would be Matthew 13, 44. Um, And I'll say I love the Word of God, but had never had a favorite verse. And this kind of came out of the call to ministry over the last four years. But it's, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. And I think Jesus is really giving us this picture that, you know, you discover the kingdom of God, and you want to follow Jesus, you want to enter into this treasure. And yet you realize that you have to sell all that you have. Surrender all of your lifestyle, surrender all of your ideas, surrender all of your life plans. And yet it's still worth it. Um, even with all of the sacrifice, there's a greater joy and reward both now. And then also, especially in eternity.
0: Hmm, That's great. What is the best business advice you ever heard?
1: Uh, this one is easy for me to answer because I've been trying to live it out and experience it more recently as I've Um, you know, my role has, uh, increased at work and that is, uh, always hire people smarter than you and make sure you're never the smartest person in the room.
0: Hmm. Great advice. How about you, John?
2: For me, you know, it's funny, my very first internship ever on my first day, um, my boss said something that always stuck with me. He said, you know, every job has its ditch digging. And uh, I had a remarkably good internship that summer, and yet I think he was probably about to hand me a project that was no fun, is why he said that. (laughs) But um, it's such a great principle that, you know, every job has wonderful elements, and yet every job we have is going to have some ditches to dig, and that's totally okay. And we can honor God and work hard in the midst of those.
0: Yeah. What advice would each of you give to somebody who's listening to this and saying, "I, you know what, I, I'm ready. I really want to step into a greater faith and generosity and really trusting God with my finances. What advice would you give them?
1: What I would say is I think uh, a, a great first step that I've seen many people make who you know maybe haven't really stepped into stewardship before but want to uh, is they lack a passion around what to give toward. Mm. And so getting that passion is a great catalyst. And so my recommendation would be to Read Romans 12, which is a passage on spiritual gifts. Identify which of those spiritual gifts God has uniquely gifted you. Apply that gift to a passion of yours and give to that passion, whether it's your local community church, whether it's a not-for-profit ministry down the street, whether it's an international ministry, whatever it may be. But if you apply your spiritual gifts to something you're passionate about, money that you then donate to that cause afterward will flow very freely and you'll be very passionate about it. And I bet you'll be hooked.
0: That's great. How about you, John?
2: Sure. You know, I think one really tactical thing that many people have found helpful is to actually have a account, whether that's a savings account, depending on how you have your accounts linked or whether for many, it's actually a donor advised fund, but have some sort of an actual account or even an envelope in your closet where you put money that's pre set aside for generosity and as you fund that over time, uh, when you have an opportunity to give, say your neighbor has a medical crisis, say the the waiter or waitress when you're out to eat is really God moves your heart for them, uh, you can give that $100, $200, $500 gift uh, spontaneously because you have the money set aside when God moves. So that's not a holistic plan for generosity, but that's one very specific thing that you can do and be ready for some unique opportunities to give.
0: That's great. That's all really great advice. Um, Do one of you mind praying over our listeners who, uh, again, who are just ready to step into greater levels of of faith in this area? Would you mind praying over them?
2: Be happy to. Um, So Father, we are so thankful for this conversation, and we're thankful for the greatest gift of all, the greatest gift ever given, which is Jesus and how he died for us and gave us the opportunity to be adopted into the family of God. So Lord, thank you for that great gift. And I pray that as we steward our financial lives and steward our time here on earth, each of us and each person listening, that, that they would be comforted by the knowledge of the gospel and Lord inspired to walk in closer relationship with you. I pray whether each listener has tons of money to steward Lord or, or negative wealth as worried over debts, you would meet them right where they are. I thank you that your plan for each of us starts with where we are right here today. And I ask that your compassion and grace and your gentle invitation would be so evident on on people's hearts today. Uh, We just thank you for who you are. We praise you and ask that you would um, move in each person's journey as they begin a new season, a new step of faithfulness moving from this, this moment forward. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. John and Greg, thank you so much for your time on the show today.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks, Don. really appreciate it.
0: I'd like to thank my guests, John Cortinas and Greg Balmer, for joining me today. Just a reminder that you can access the show notes for today's episode at dawnsadler.com slash 033. If you'd like to hear more conversations with Christians who are finding purpose, redefining work, and changing their world, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. The Your Purpose is Calling podcast is brought to you by Avada Christian Coaching. Sign up for our free weekly coaching emails at com slash subscribe. This has been the Your Purpose is Calling podcast. I'm your host, Don Sadler. Thanks for listening.